Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 232 being recorded on Thursday, August 13th, 2020. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Today on the show, we are super excited to continue what I like to call our summer of blue chip guest. Uh, We are welcoming John Fleming to the show. John is currently the interim CEO of Rue21 and previously had stints at Uniqlo, Walmart, and he's on the boards of Bed Bath & Beyond, Visual Comfort, and Untuck It. John, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you guys this afternoon. We are thrilled to have you, John. Uh, Scott gave us a little bit of uh, teaser, but you've you've actually had a storied retail career. Um, we always like to start by getting just a little bit of background. Can you tell us how you got started in retail and kind of just walk us through the the elevator version of your career? Yeah, I uh, I got into retail in 1981 when the economy was terrible and I needed a job and uh, I had a liberal arts degree, which didn't really prepare me for anything. And I stumbled across Dayton's department store in Minneapolis and got into their training program thinking I'd do this for a while. And I liked it and I was pretty good at it. And I've been at it ever since. And I've seen a lot of changes in retail during my almost 40 years of uh, being in the retail business. Uh, and that and it makes you a super young man um, you, when you started because you're still very, very youthful. That's uh, right. And uh, you I and I, at, I was seven years old when I started. Yeah. And do I have it right? Like you were the first e-commerce leader at Walmart, if I'm remembering right. I was the second. So oh. I followed Gene Jackson, who was, you know, a rock star CEO that, that was uh, leading Banana Republic. And she came over uh, to put the dream team together and she hired me to be the chief merchant. So I was the first chief merchant at Walmart.com. I was then technically the second CEO. Uh, that's right. And and then um, about seven years ago, I started uh, – I joined an agency which became part of Publicist called Razorfish. And my first week on the job, they're like, hey, we have this new client uh, called Uniqlo, and you have to fly to Japan and meet the team. Um, and I yeah. feel like uh, I, that was the greatest I've ever eaten at work, by the way. <laughs> that was a pretty good gig, except so I got into that because they were pretty far behind in e-commerce, had an incredible, you know, store program, building flagship stores all over the world and, you know, very dominant in Asia, but weren't really doing much with e-commerce. So I got sort of lured out of retirement to come back in and get in the game. And uh, we put a team together in San Francisco because that was part of what, what I felt needed to happen to run a global e-commerce team. And uh, what I learned pretty quickly, though, is the only way I was going to get anything done was to get on that plane and fly to Japan. And I think over three years, I went to, to Tokyo 36 times. Uh, and, and that got to be a little difficult at, at my age. So um, we, we put a great team together and we jump started the business and, you know, got them to a really good level. And then I went into my second retirement. Oh, my goodness. And uh, that that will bring us to your second unretirement because you at the moment have the most trendy 
title in retail, which is um, interim CEO. In, interim, right? You're not fully committed, but you can, uh, you, you're focused enough that you can make stuff happen. Um, yeah. So I, I then as, as I got into my second retirement, then I started uh, looking at different boards that I wanted to get involved in. And I, and I got on to three or four boards and was really enjoying that and a, sort of a broad range of, of uh, consumer and or retail companies. And one of them was Route 21, and they were coming out of uh, bankruptcy in the fall of uh, 17. I think it was September of 17, and I was recruited to go on the board, um, and I did. And we worked very hard to uh, – the, the, the interesting thing was, you know, in my background, I've only worked for, like, world-class companies. And so at the first board meeting, they spent all the time talking about liquidity. And I'm like, what, what is this? You know, and vendor terms. And I'm like, Really? Because uh, those weren't things that I really ever focused on in my retail career. Uh, but fast forward, having that uh, exposure and training has served me very well during this COVID crisis because then I was on the board for a couple of years. And then we made a change in February and uh, I was the board member that they kind of all pointed to and said, we need you to step in and sort of take this to the next level while we look for a, a new CEO. And I did. And at the time, I remember this so clearly. It's the only time I went to Pittsburgh in this role. Uh, I flew in and we had a meeting and got together with the team and we charted out that year and the next three years. And we'd come off a pretty successful year and things were looking pretty good. And I think the first week of March, we were up 10% year to date and you know the world looked pretty bright. And then all of a sudden, three weeks later, we closed 673 stores and furloughed 9,000 people. Um, so it's been quite the ride. Uh, but we did then uh, open our store starting in May and had each week we opened the stores that we could. And the time that we were closed gave us an opportunity to sort of rethink the business and to sort of reposition ourselves because there were a number of things that as I came in, I saw we could do differently. And for, starting with, you know, becoming more customer focused and, and digitally led. Um, and, and, and not just thinking about stores. Uh, and we learned a number of things about our customers and, and the, the way we, we, we did our pricing and promotion and the inventory that we carried. And we were able to make a number of changes. And as we opened the stores again, the customers came back quickly. I think the fiscal stimulus helped a lot. Um, but we've been able to sustain that. And we're, we're in a very good position right now. Awesome. And uh, we want to dive into COVID a little bit more. But uh, before we do, I just want to make sure we level set everyone in the audience. Uh, a lot of our audience will be familiar with Rue 21. But for folks that uh, aren't, I think of you guys as a solid omni-channel retailer. So I think you've got like 360 some odd stores. Uh, you have a strong digital and social presence. I, if I have it right, you primarily sell your own apparel. So you're you're the manufacturer and the the retailer, and um, you're uh, uh, primarily targeted at a, a sort of a teen. And I, I would would you call yourselves fast fashion, or would you call yourself? Well, it's interesting. That's a, that's an internal debate. Okay. We aspire to be we aspire to be faster. We definitely call ourselves fashion, but we aspire to be faster, and that is part of the learning. So one of the things that we learned during the uh, the, the shutdown, when the stores were shut down, and we had a really, you know, a skeleton crew that was guiding the business at that point, is that was as we did a sort of an evaluation of all of our processes and 
you know, and, and, and how we presented to customers and, you know, how we engage with customers. Um, we came up with a new mantra, which is simple, fast, and new. And so that everything we looked at, we wanted to simplify it. We wanted to move more quickly. And ultimately, we wanted to deliver newness to our customer uh, much faster. Um, and so we are, what you described as true. We have 670 stores. Um, I think your uh, view of us as a, you know, a successful omni-channel retailer is a little overstated. Um, we've been a very successful store-based retailer, but we're building omni-channel capabilities, and that's a big part of our growth strategy. In fact, we are uh, migrating to a new platform uh, in September, and it will be the latest technology. So it's you know, headless technology, cloud-based, uh, API-driven, um, and this will improve our site performance dramatically. Uh, and, and, and then ultimately, you know, it we will take some friction out in some of the, 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 the customer's path, primarily around checkout and make it a little more mobile friendly. But then the, the, the real features and functionality that I think will take us to the next level will happen after holiday. Um, and the COVID thing slowed us down a little bit there because of the you know, uncertainty in April as to, you know, what the outcome of this is going to be. So we had to kind of s slow down some of the projects. But then as we opened the stores and could see things were going well, we accelerated again. And we're really excited about the, the holiday season. But yeah, we, we serve a younger consumer. Our, our customer is, you know, 16 to 28 would be the sweet spot. Um, we actually compete quite well with other uh, uh, fashion, young retail brands. And one of the things that I learned when I got under the hood, moving from a board member to uh, the interim CEO, is that our best format is actually in a mall. And as a board member, I was way more familiar with the, the strip centers that we had. And those had been the stores that we had grown more recently. Uh, but we do really well where we have a full competitive set. And the uh, the findings there are that you know, that consumer is not super loyal to anybody, goes to the mall, wants to see what's happening with their friends. And in the end, uh, our prices are quite good. And I know from my Walmart days is, you know, price is a good lever. Uh, but what we're trying to get better at is is what's the news and, and the fashion newness and telling the, 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 the story that really emotionally connects with the consumer based on what the product is. And then the promotion is more an outcome of, you know, how much you own. Uh, but we have the low price position and we have the potential to be uh, a, a fast fashion retailer, meaning, you know, new, new, newness to our customer more frequently. But there are some internal things that we've had to work through to sort of speed up the process. Very cool. As the father of two daughters, I've been in many a Rue 21. So it's always interesting to see the, nice. uh, yeah, the, the displays and, you know, you obviously have a, a young audience and it's always kind of vibrant and a lot going on in the store. Um, how many of the stores are mall based versus non mall? About half are mall based half, and half yeah. are strip centers. Yep. 50 50. Yeah. Well, since we're here kind of hopefully in towards the end of, of, of the pandemic, I'm, I'm the optimist on the show. Jason would say this, it's this only the, the beginning. This is the end of the pandemic? Yeah. You think this is the end of the pandemic? <laughs> I do. I'm uh, the Scott does. I do I not. I said I'm the optimist. Jason James for about five years second. Well, I don't know that. I mean, I, I, I think, and I'm not a doctor, I don't know anything, but uh, it seems to me like we'll be living this way into next spring. Yeah. Hopefully not. Um, well, given that, uh, you know, you've talked a little bit about the impact on the business. So, so maybe walk us through, um, you know, it seems like you guys have done a, a good job, as good a job as you can navigating this. So kind of March came, we did shelter in place, your, your stores were closed. 
What what are you, you know, tell us some of the actions you guys have taken and, and what it's looking like today um, now, now that we're kind of coming out of it a little bit. So, so we're really quite, quite happy with how we came through this. And I think that the, uh, the reason we were able to do as well as we've done is because we were very decisive. So if you think back, and it's, it, it seems like so long ago, but I can remember it day by day. Mm-hmm. And I remember even a friend of mine that's a Walmart supplier um, called me, let's say, the end of February. And I think I just assumed this role and was talking about, hey, so what are you thinking about this, this virus thing? And the entire conversation was around supply. Well, you know, we're worried, you know, because are we going to be able to get the product that we have on order? And for the next week or so, every discussion that I had, you know, with every company I'm involved in was really around supply. Um, And then all of a sudden, somewhere early in March, probably five, six, something like that in March, I remember the same guy called me and we had the same discussion. And he said, you know, you keep talking about supply. What about demand? And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, well, what if customers don't go to stores? And I'm like, well, oh, come on. It's not going to be like that. You know? <laughs> and he was definitely the canary in the coal mine. And I remember him saying, and then, you know, at that point, then my CFO and I started talking and, you know, we were and, and, and all the discussion was still about supply. And I said to her, like, we should model what happens if we drop 10%. And I remember having this discussion. I was like, I was on the phone with her. I was in California at the time and, you know, she was in Pittsburgh and, you know, she, we were looking at, she said, I think we'll be okay at 10%. I'm like, what about 20? She goes, well, that gets a little dicier. And then I remember talking to my friend again and he said, what if you have to close your stores? And I'm like, that's never going to happen. I remember this so clearly. And that was like March 6th. Well, on March 12th, the world changed, right? That's when the NBA shut down. And like just the dominoes just started falling. And at that point, we were doing everything we could to stay open. So for the next week, I would say, you know, it's kind of like the change management thing. Like at first we were in denial, then we were in resistance, right? And, and so from March 12th to about March 18th, around us, there were, you know, municipalities and or states that were mandating closing. And so every day on our call, it'd be how many stores did we have to close? And, you know, on the first day it was like 12. That was another 20. And I remember even doing a virtual town hall because um, I was in California and, and, uh, and I was headed back to Pittsburgh, like on that Monday, which would have been like the uh, 15th or 16th and talking to the team about, you know, we're going to do everything we can to keep the associates and customers healthy and safe, but we're going to keep our stores open because clearly our customers you know, they still are coming to the stores because at that point we were just running down, let's say 10, 12%. You know, it hadn't really dropped yet. But then on the, I think it was the 18th or 19th of March. And again, I'm in California and Governor Newsom like is going to shut down the state and San Francisco is going to shut down. And I just was struck by the fact like, oh my God, this is real. This is happening. And the next morning, it was a Friday, I got on the phone with the team and I said, "I I think, I think everything's getting shut down. And we had a discussion about it. And I said, I think we should get ahead of this. And we should plan to shut down for two months because this isn't going to play out quickly. And on that Friday at 11 o'clock Eastern time, we made the decision to shut down 673 stores and furlough 9,000 people. And we did it by end of business day the next day on a Saturday. We did it. And we focused on being shut down for two months. And I think 
that was a huge success factor for us. Because if you remember at that time, everybody was having the same discussion, but they were thinking, I'm going to close till the end of March. You know, I'm going to close till the first week of April. And I think being in that middle space paralyzed a lot of retailers Mm -hmm. because we were able to, we canceled inventory. We shut down the stores. It gave us a chance to evaluate our processes, to think about what we'd look like when we opened, to do talent evaluations. I mean, we went through all these steps and we were, I think we were a month ahead of everybody. So by the time we opened and magically, it was about exactly two months. We started open stores, opening stores the second week of May. And we opened 180 or something the first week and 100 the next week. And, you know, just went through that and got, you know, the majority of them, I think, in California, we still have some stores closed because it's mandated by um, uh, uh, by law. But uh, we have we have over 650 stores open, and we're doing well. And we have a you know a slimmer team than we had before, and we streamlined a lot of processes, and we've started to take steps towards being digitally first because we're using the digital channel to better understand you know our customers and and demand, and you know using that information to better run the stores. And so we're getting there. And we're in a good place. And I, you know, what I would say even, you know, outside of Rue, the lesson that I've learned is that there's three things that are going to make companies successful um, in, in during COVID and coming out of COVID. You got to be relevant. So if there isn't something that's clear that you do and you can differentiate yourself and your brand stands out from the rest, there's no reason. And that's where I think department stores are going to have a problem because I just don't think they're relevant anymore. Um, second thing is you got to be agile. You know, there's going to be things that change. I still think, you know, I, I, I'd like to think we're almost, it's almost over, but it's not. And we're going to be thrown into a number of different situations over the next six or eight months. We may have to close stores. We'll be opening stores. We'll have to, you know, pivot to more, you know, digital distribution. There's going to be things that are going to happen and the companies that are agile will be able to handle it. And thirdly, you got to be very disciplined. And, and that prim- primarily around financials. And that's where I go back to the first thing I told you is when I got involved with Rue, you know, I'm not used to working in financially distressed companies. And yet, you know, seeing a company come through bankruptcy and get back on its feet uh, was very valuable experience to me because, you know, on that day we decided to close all the stores. We immediately, you know, shut down all of our payables. We shut down all of our CapEx. We focused on liquidity. You know, we, we renegotiated terms with lenders. I mean, we were on it. And I had, you know, a great financial partner to help me through that. But, you know, that, that little bit of experience that I had early on in being on the Rue board, which is a company out of coming out of bankruptcy, sort of prepared me for this. Very cool. Um, one one kind of tactical question uh, is, so, so you're, you know, it's early March, you've got your storage kind of I imagine loaded with summer inventory. What what do you do with that stuff now that you're opening? Do you do you have to flush some of that, or do you have enough of a season that you can kind of get it work it out of the store? Yes. Yeah, so, so actually, the stuff in the store was was good because it was just we had just been getting receipts for spring, and they were you know the floor set was only a couple weeks uh, old by the time we shut the stores down. So we basically just mothballed the stores and locked it down. The issue was more what was coming because we knew we were going to miss two months of sales. And so thankfully we, uh, we eliminated all that. And, and we were very, and again, I think, you know, on March 20th, we were looking at that, that number, you know, we knew what the number was, we knew it had to go away and we made it go away. So by the time we opened in mid-May, 
we were about where we wanted to be in terms of inventory. And it was fresh enough. And I think the combination of the pent-up demand from the consumer, the fiscal stimulus, and the lack of other alternatives for our customer to spend money on. Because think of it, during that time frame, there weren't bars and restaurants, there weren't movie theaters, there weren't places to go spend your money. So they actually were looking for places to spend some money. And they, in some cases, they had more money than they had before. So we got a good jump start, I think. And that, you know, it gave us a chance to sort of refine, you know, the, the, the presentations in the stores. You know, we did some training. We, we, we got our stores focused going back to this simple, fast and new mantra. We removed a whole bunch of tasks that we used to do in the store and just got the, the, the stores focused on serve customers. We're going we're gonna to flow the products better. We're going to be much clearer as to where you, you put it. And we're going to streamline the promotions because in the past, we were always, you know, messing around with the promotions every day based on, you know, what we thought was going to drive traffic. And, and in the end, it didn't. It just created confusion in the stores. So this, this simple, fast and new approach um, really was was adopted very well by the entire organization. And even the store organizations just felt like we simplified their lives and let them focus on customers. The other thing that we were able to do is we launched the loyalty program and this was you know all in the works before I even took over, but it was all store focused. So our company was really a store focused company. And that was one of the first things that I wanted to change when I, you know, took to got in the chair was that you know, my background is going back to 2000 is more, you know, the retail has changed. And I grew up in an era when retail was, you know, product focused and store driven. And I was a product merchant for the first 20 years of my career. But then, you know, I was very fortunate that I got into the online space and the visibility to customer information in real time, you know, and I don't know that I would have articulated it this way in 2000, but you know, if, if old retail was product focused and store driven, new, new retail is customer focused and data driven. And so that, that gave us an opportunity to start to make that pivot at Rue and really get focused on who our customer is. We launched the loyalty program online. It's been fantastic. You know, it's, it's, it's driven engagement with our customers and now we're, now we're rolling it out in the stores and, you know, we expect to have two thirds of our customers enrolled in this loyalty program by next year. That's awesome. And uh, I want to drill into some of the digital stuff, but I do want to poke on malls just a little bit because you, you're uh, it's a great opportunity to talk to someone that uh, is living the mall experience right now. I just read a scary quote from uh, David Simon, who's the, the CEO at, at Simon Malls. Um, and it was something to the effect of, yeah, I was feeling pretty good about getting back to work in June. Um, July feels less good. And now I'm totally confused about what's going to happen in August. And he was kind of talking about the fact that like, yeah, we got most of the malls open, but you know, now various parts of the the country are having challenges and it sounds like they're having to reclose some malls and it's, it's really unclear what the future is. Are you guys just having to kind of like, I assume in most mall situations, you don't even get to pick when you're open or not that essentially the mall right. is going to Make right. make that decision for you. So it's just it feels like you just have to be really agile and be prepared for whatever comes. Right. So there's a couple things that went on. I think everybody was pretty happy with June, and I do think there was a pent up demand. You know, in, in basically all retail channels, I think June. You know, there there may see, be some laggards. I'm not sure that the department stores did that great, but but most retailers, I think, had a nice June into July. 
But then you, you have two things that um, created headwind mid-July into August. And they're actually all impacted by COVID, right? So as the business started to soften a bit mid-July, if you charted my business nationally, and we have stores in 46 states, it looked like a COVID map. So any place mid-July where the virus was starting to increase, our, our business was running down and those states were red. And any place where it was under control, primarily you know the north, um, parts of the Midwest, parts of the Northwest, business was very positive. And that sort of played out as, you know, we'd had this surge of, of increases with the virus. Now that combined with the uncertainty around back to school. And I think this has been, you know, fairly w well publicized is, you know, it's not clear, like, when schools are starting, it's different by municipality. Some schools have pushed it out. There's some schools in the South that have started again. Some are going two days on, two days off. And that uncertainty has basically killed the opportunity to hit the, the peaks of back to school. So like Saturdays are terrible for two reasons. One, those are the biggest volume days. And there's there was urgency in the past from consumers because they it was almost like holiday they knew i had two more weekends before school started well there's that urgency doesn't exist and and the second thing is in most cases the hours are reduced which isn't a bad thing and actually it paid off really well in june from a profitability standpoint i know in our case we used to be open 10 to 9 in almost every location we're now open uh 11 to 7 so so there's three fewer hours and during the week, it hasn't mattered because the, the, the patterns to the customers have evolved and there isn't the urgency. And so we don't need the extra hours. And we just we just bank that in savings on operating costs. But on Saturdays, it's, it's a problem when you get into these peak time frames. Now, what I will say is it looks like we're getting to the other side of it because we've been charting our business based on, you know, school starts early, mid, late. And the first stores that really had a difficult time were the early starts both in terms of it's not clear when they're going to start. So there wasn't the urgency and they're up against these big numbers, including these tax-free events that all moved out. So the first wave of that was very difficult, but now we're seeing that that first wave of stores are, are running positive comps for us again, because we're past, we're past the, 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 the hill from last year and we're more into our base business. So we still have to work through the, the, the mid and the, and the, and the late, waves. But I think what's going to happen and what I've told my team is we're going to evaluate our back to school business on more of an eight or nine week time frame instead of a six week. Um, because I think it's just going to extend a lot longer because there isn't the same sense of urgency. And so that could be what part of what he's talking about. Um, because the traffic has been very, um, very mixed and not sure. consistent. Yeah. And that that's a recurring theme I have heard is, you know, a lot of national retailers you you tend to be one size fits all. You run the like part of the advantage of your scale is you get to run the same campaign everywhere and you get good efficiencies right. from doing that. And back to school being a perfect example. And in the post COVID world, per your point, you can't go live with the same message in North Dakota that had four hundred cases that you you are in Atlanta, for example, or something. And so right. it's like, I feel like we're all having to learn to be local. And per your point, did school open? Is it hybrid? Like all of those things are, are new skills I see retailers sort of acquiring very quickly. Well, and, and pricing too. 
because you know if you run the same if you're trying to drive some kind of promotion that you're you're trying to get incremental you know unit sales out of but you have no traffic you're just going to deflate your sales and that was the one that was hard for the team because this is a team that you know is used to a highly promotional business and you know and even talking through you know pass back to schools i mean they were changing prices all the time because there was the 6 week window of back to school which was the second biggest 6 week period in the year next to christmas for this business and you couldn't miss a day so so there was always these adjustments on price and you know that's where i just had to convince them like look at this i mean sure you could you could we could drop the price on denim to you know bogo free which is basically 50 off but you're just going to deflate your sales because you need to get a 60% lift to 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 offset the markdown and 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 as we went through it and we really looked at like let's price this stuff so we think we can sell it at a regular price it's a fair value and you know we'll make adjustments along the way but if there's if there's if the traffic is off 50% in Florida and Texas you know and it's and it's flat in Michigan you know you can't run the same pricing everywhere so yeah it's been but but we've kind of erred on the side of like let's not be as promotional let's let's try and go out with fair prices and let's try and you know manage the units or the the, the margin on a unit basis and it's worked and in, in some ways i think and, I, and i've always sort of had this theory that you know, like you get into the holiday season, you get into December, like everybody goes 50 off everything. For one thing, I hate that because that means you're selling your very best things at the same price you're selling your very worst things. And as a merchant, that's a bad idea. And so I've always been sort of averse to this, like 50 off all or 40 off all. And I believe that, you know, pricing and promotion is, is as much about merchandising and understanding what the customer wants and what your ownership is. So that's that's like another process that we've been able to learn and discover. Um, and the team is now, you know, fully supportive of because they see the results. Yeah, it's a uh, and unfortunately, it, it's shaping up to be fifty uh, percent off. Maybe the new twenty percent off uh, uh, this holiday. We'll have to see, but it it's not looking good right now. Um, yeah, the holiday though, I see the holiday a little differently. I think the back to school thing is very uncertain, and I'm sure that when when everything gets added up, there will be much less spent in total. Um, even in school supplies, I got to believe it'll be less because, um, you know, people just, you know, if you're homeschooled versus going to school, I don't know. I mean, it just seems to me like it'll be less because it's uncertain. What's for certain for holiday is Christmas is on the 25th and there are going to be packages under the tree. The challenge is how do you connect with the consumer and what's your distribution strategy to take full advantage of it? So, like that's one where at Rue, you know, we had one single warehouse and we're very quickly trying to enable ship from store because that way, even if the stores get shut down, we have the ability to broaden our distribution network. And that's what I think everybody saw that in April. I mean, e-com just bounced in April and went from, you know, I don't know if it was running, the market was running probably up 15% or something in February. And then it went up to like 40 and 50% in April. And the same thing's going to happen for holiday. Cool. It's uh, I'm, I'm the e-commerce guy on the show, so I, I like to hear those numbers. Um, speaking of e-commerce, it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we didn't introduce the topic of Amazon just a little bit. And you've, you know, uh, since you've got your career in the started in the '80s, you've you've kind of had a really interesting view. You know, you kind of saw Amazon come on the scenes as this ratchet online right. bookseller, and then become the behemoth they are today. Um, what, what's your overall view of Amazon? Are they this unstoppable, you know, 800 pound gorilla or 
they're just kind of going to be 20 or 30% of, of e-commerce and, uh, you know, high single digits of, of retail. Where, where do you fall on the Amazon topic? Well, it depends, you know, listen, they, they have built the 21st century retail infrastructure. Um, and honestly, they're almost less of a retailer and more of a platform because they've got so many lines of business now. So, you know, as a business, they're huge. They're going to continue to grow. As a retailer, though, I still think, and, and it, I've been saying this for a few years, and I, I have yet to be proved true because they're still running up 20% or whatever on their retail business. Is that right? Aren't they like up 20, 25% or something on there if you just look at their retail line of business? Yeah, COVID, like COVID gave them yeah. a bit of a boost, but yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so you know, and, and, and so they're, they're still growing. But by the way, you know, we could have had this discussion about Walmart in the late 80s and 90s when they were running up 20% every year, right? Um, you know, and then at some point you get so big that it's hard to put 20% on top of a really big number. Um, so I think that'll happen to Amazon. Um, I still think there are a number of things that are, that could create headwind for Amazon at some point. I think direct to consumer, if I don't know the direct consumer will ever get to be like 40 or 50% of total retail for two reasons. A, it's inefficient. The last mile costs a fortune. And second of all, the infrastructure is not built for that. Just, you know, UPS and FedEx and Amazon trucks would jam every street in America if, if we were driven, delivering 40% of all retail direct to the consumer. So I still think that this idea of having these distribution points, which is an advantage for Walmart, where the consumer can do all the things they love about online. They can go online. You know, they can put things together. They've got the information that they need. They could do the comparisons. It's all done on their phone. You know, it's easier making a choice online than it is like standing in a, a crowded uh, grocery store looking for, you know, the tomato sauce you're looking for. Um, so, so I think there's some limitations in direct-to-consumer. I also think that e-commerce grew because of search. And I still think the primary driver to e-commerce is the consumer knows what they want and they go find it. And Amazon gives them a lot of choice and clear comparisons and has taken tremendous friction out. And that's that 21st century retail infrastructure that I'm talking about. However, if I go back to when I started in retail and especially in the glory days of department stores, the majority of retail, aside from like grocery and consumables, was discovery based. So, you know, a woman would go into a department store in 1983. She kind of knew she wanted to buy a dress, but wasn't exactly sure. And she came out with, you know, a handbag and a pair of shoes. And, you know, and, and so this whole idea of discovery, which is much more of an emotional um, shopping trip, is something that isn't great online, still isn't great online. I keep thinking with all the tools, with personalization and, you know, understanding the customer, it, it, it's going to evolve, but I still think the best discovery is in a physical store. That tactile experience of, you know, looking and feeling and seeing things and the art of presentation, I still think there's a role for that. And I think that stores have to up their game in terms of what's the experience? You know, what's, what, what's the differentiator in, in the store? Why do you go to a store? Like, just to go to a poorly merchandised store that's dirty and that clear how to shop? is not a great experience, but going into a great store that gives you inspiration and gives you ideas and allows you to discover things that you didn't before. So I do think that omni-channel retailing is, 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 a, is, a, is the, the long-term, sustainable, scalable retail model. And I just don't know how Amazon plays in that. 
Um, you know, they, they've tried a number of things because I'm sure they have a bunch of smart people, you know, in rooms with whiteboards saying, we got to figure out how to do this digital distribution thing. Because if we could get a bunch of customers to come to a location and we had all their packages there, it's a lot cheaper for us. Um, but, but nothing's really taken hold yet. Um, I mean, I've, I've always thought that, you know, if, if, if Amazon would buy like a Target or a Kroger, that could be a game changer um, because then they'd get broad distribution um, in, in, in one fell swoop and be able to sort of discover how do they take what they know. And obviously they've got more data than anybody. Um, and how do they then integrate that into what customers still really want and need, which is an, an omni experience. Um, and I think the challenge has been for the for the physical stores, and I saw this, I learned this early on in my walmart.com days, is the physical companies had a very difficult time going digital because they thought of everything by function. And, and digital to them meant, let's just digitize the function. You know, even going back to the days of like the Sunday circular that used to drive the retail business in the 80s and 90s, you know, they st- and, and magazines still do this. They digitize what they did before, and they call that their customer experience. The digitally native companies start with what's the customer experience. And, I, and, I, and I'm still, my wife and I were talking about this today. It's like, I'm still kind of blown away by these magazine companies that still just want to digitize, you know, Vanity Fair, Sports Illustrated, you know, they just want to digitize what they did before, as opposed to using this new medium to be able to create a new experience for the, co- for the consumer to consume their content. And they just haven't gotten there. And it's because the physical companies can't get their head around it. And that's where I do think the value in these digitally native companies, and a lot of them, when you really look at it, if you think of e-commerce, there's only like three really big companies that were digitally native that that grew into like real businesses and e-commerce. The rest of them just kind of come and go. They get to $100 million and then they fail, you know, or they get maybe to a billion dollars, but they don't make any money. You know, I I, I still sort of question Wayfair. I mean, they have no path to make money. And yet, you know, they've got this crazy valuation and it's the future and this is what the customer wants. But they ship in all these big cube things that are heavy and expensive to ship. So, you know, but there are these, these, these spaces in e-commerce like small cube, high value. Ding, ding, ding. It works. And there's value to the customer and you can ship it direct. But I still think, I mean, going back to the, the original thing, I, I just think five, 10 years from now, it's the omni-channel retailers that are going to grow, be relevant, and also they need to be agile. And I think even the omni-channel retailers need to figure out how do they shift their P&L to be a little bit more towards variable costs and less around fixed costs, because that gives you the agility required to sort of maneuver through any situation that's thrown at you. Yep. I, uh, you brought up Omnichannel a number of times, and I, I'm particularly interested in what you think Omnichannel might look like for this holiday, because one of the things that has me worried is, you know, normal year, like the whole e-commerce industry grows like 16%. Last quarter, right. e-commerce was up 52%. And so right. one, one thing I know for a fact is UPS does not have enough trucks to have e-commerce grow 50% in Q4. So how, how are we going to, <laughs> How are we going to fulfill all this digital demand? That's why. That's why UPS and FedEx are putting all these surcharges on any any volume you do above what your normal volume is. I think they're throwing a buck a package on. I've, I've heard it could be as high as three. Too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. My my team probably just hasn't wanted to tell me that yet. Um, uh, yeah. But I think when you see fifty two percent, that's not all direct to consumer. 
that's e-com initiated that could end up being picked up in a store. So it could be like, you know, buy online, pick up in a store, or it could be curbside. And I think that that could take some of that. Um, and, and honestly, there's going to be a lot of it. I mean, I, I expect e-com to grow 40 or 50% this holiday. So it's, it's going to be either a traffic jam, it's going to be very expensive to distribute, or, you know, the winners are going to figure out how do I use my stores, get the customer to start online, but then use my store as the place to, you know, fulfill that, that product. And actually, I mean, this is, it's, 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 it reminds me of, you know, in 2002 at Walmart, we launched what we called at the time site to store, which is Bopus. Um, and, and I remember the stores were so opposed to it because this was back in the days when the stores thought that, you know, e-com was their competitor and it was just taking their customer away from the, the store. But what we were able to show them, and this is where we got like the Walmart stores to really adopt it quickly in 2002, as I recall, was that when we showed them the basket that, you know, the customer was coming in and they were buying something online, picking it up in the store, and then they added to the basket and the basket back then was five times bigger than the, the average basket. And so once we got the store managers, you know, to see that, they're like, okay, I'm in. Um, because it's a, it's, even if it's not an incremental trip, it's a bigger basket size. So I, I think that's going to be a big part of everybody's playbook is how do you get them to start online? And ultimately, how do you use your, your distribution network uh, beyond your traditional distribution network to be able to, uh, uh, you know, fulfill for customers? Yeah. Is that um, so one of the things you have to do in order to be good at at uh, digital pre-shopping and pickup in store is you have to have your in-store inventory featured prominently on your website. Is that part of your your website remodel? Is it? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. And that's hard. That's all that stuff is. I mean, the devil's in the details on all this stuff. And, um, you know, understanding where the you know, how do you set your your mins and maxes and what's the floor and, you know, what's the watermark, all that stuff. You got to go through and figure it out and test it. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's, those are table stakes. You got to do it or it doesn't work. Yeah. And I, I have seen some reports that some of the mall operators are trying to um, offer some like aggregated curbside pickup experiences for all of you. Guys. Oh, I, you... I hadn't seen that. That makes sense. No, I haven't. No, I'll look into that. Um, haven't seen that, but that makes sense too, because if you could just ship it to the mall, um, you know, they could, they could, so they have capacity and, you know, they could, I mean, again, they'd have to figure it out and there's a whole process you'd have to put in place. I mean, and that's what I think as everybody rapidly tried to get to, you know, curbside was kind of the new buzzword as we got into the, the, the COVID situation. And there was a lot of confusion around that. Cause like, as a customer, what does that mean? Does it mean I just pull up to the door and wait? You know, and, and some companies did it pretty well. You know, they, you'd, you'd call a phone number and you'd talk to somebody and they'd bring it out. And other ones, uh, you know, you'd, you'd like still have to like park and go inside and find the person that was supposed to bring it out to your car. Um, that's where I think Walmart has an advantage. Uh, you know, I, I remember back in like 09 and 10, we were trying to do uh, uh, grocery delivery online and build that capability. And this was still where it was a bit of a, like a, a an organ transplant that didn't take because the costs were high, but we just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And I think thankfully for Walmart, um, they stuck with it because I think their drive-through has been, and ultimately that morphed into, you know, drive-through pickup, but, but you still had to have that capability within in, in the store to figure out how do you pick pack and, 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 and get it ready for the customer. Um, and I think that's a huge advantage for Walmart. Yeah, another trend I wanted to pick your brain on because you you 
been in the retail industry so long is, you know, we talk a lot about this on the show of these brands going direct. So, um, you know, first you had kind of electronics, like obviously Dell, and then now it's leaked into apparel where, where the CEO of Nike said they want to be, you know, majority direct to consumer. Um, my understanding is at Route 21, you mostly carry other brands, right? Do you, do you worry as a no, retailer? No, no, we carry our own. No, oh, no, we carry our own. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. So we're yeah. we're direct to consumer with our own brand. Okay. All right. So you're you're almost yeah. like part of the trend in a way, I guess. <laughs> um, what, yeah. See, as long as you're part. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I just think though, but but we're a retailer, right? We're a retail brand. I think it's a little different. I think with consumer brands, with consumer products, there will be winners and losers. Not it doesn't work for everybody. Um, and if you have a path, like like I think the Shave Club thing, you know, and I, I don't even I'm not close enough to it anymore to know which one's winning and which one's not. But you know, when you can get a customer on a specific product, and then you can broaden the offering into sort of adjacent products that are complementary. And you know, this idea was a Dollar Shave Club or one of them that basically wanted to own the bathroom for the guy, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 that's an interesting idea, especially if you can get the consumable thing going. And you know, especially younger people, they're 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 okay with this subscription thing. You know, I mean, they grew up with Spotify and Netflix. This is not whereas like the older generation hates all that stuff because they think in terms of like what. I'm going to sign up for a you know a monthly fee for this thing every, but that's the way the young people think. Um, they're more about like subscriptions than they are like actually going to the mall and buying clothes. So um, I just think there's winners and losers. I don't think it works for every every brand, uh, and then the economics have to work. So again, you know, it's like uh, small cube, high value. Okay, there's you, there's a sh- and, and then especially with frequency of purchase. Okay, that sounds good. Like. Now, is the brand distinctive? Is it unique? How is it positioned against competitors? And you kind of have to just work through all that. I don't know that, you know, it's one size fits all. And this is a trend where all these companies are going to go direct to the consumer and it's going to completely disrupt any kind of, you know, physical distribution. One, um, so so I saw you're on the board of Untuck It and they, they kind of went down this path. Uh, I kind of put them in this di- digitally native vertical brand bucket, like Bonobos yeah. and all those guys. Um, yeah. And then, you know, it seems like there's this trend where those companies all get up to a couple hundred million in revenue and then they start opening stores. And I've, I've noticed Untucket has been opening a fair number of stores or sometimes they'll call them guide shops and stuff. Um, do you think that's, you think the mall is going to be full of just kind of brand stores in the future? Well, and, I, and left, Untucket did a really good job because what, what Bonobos did, and, and I'm obviously much closer to Untucket time than Bonobos, but I know a little bit about it. You know, they, they got their business to like an online business that was $100 million, and I don't think it was ever profitable. But then the way to grow was to add stores. Mm-hmm. Untucket actually went at it a little differently. They did start as an online business, but very quickly, they saw the opportunity to have a physical location to be able to get customers to understand the quality of the product and the fit. Mm-hmm. And so the stores, I mean, the stores are primarily around get them into the store and find what their fit is, get them comfortable with the quality, and then the repeat is online. And so they've been very surgical about, you know, where do the stores go and what's the what's the role of the store? Because they didn't come in and just do like, you know, full-on apparel stores like a lot of the competitors would have done. It's a it's a different it's a different experience in the store. There's a lot of service, and and the and the objective is really about you know quality fit experience, which ultimately leads to more engagement and fulfillment online. Um, so I think some and then they did that sort of like step by step, and 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 every time that we've added stores, 
you know, we get more online business. And it just kind of, they work hand in hand. And then there was a very good strategy to understand the customer, to understand the cost of acquiring a customer, and then figuring out how to monetize that by having this Omni experience. Um, I think a lot of the other digitally native companies sort of backed into a store because they ran out of growth. And, and, and this is the one thing that's just, you know, so clear when you've been on both sides. It's like, once you build a store, you have some marketing that's built in. It's called traffic that goes by your store every day. Online, you have to buy the traffic every day. And I think, you know, part of the problem with these digitally native companies, they get started and their marketing is pretty viral and it doesn't cost them a lot until they get to a certain level. And then they got to play with the big boys. They got to get involved and they got to start like bidding on keywords and they got to start, you know, paying the price of what it takes to drive traffic when, when you get to a certain volume. And a lot of these, then the, 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 the startups behind them are coming in loaded with cash. And so they're bidding the prices up. So all the, the digital advertising just keeps going up. And then all of a sudden there's a correction. A bunch of these companies go out of business, they go away, the prices come back down. And so it's just like been the self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like nothing I've ever seen in media before where, you know, the small guys are actually driving up the prices as they're trying to scale and as they're funded by, you know, by, by venture. And, 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 and then they drive the prices up and then they can't, they get to a certain point, they can't afford it anymore. I mean, that's what happened with Walmart and Jet is that, you know, as they got into it and tried to scale Jet, like the return on ad spend was terrible in Jet compared to Walmart. Like every dollar they'd spend on Walmart would be much better return because they have a much bigger scale. For sure. Um, and I feel like that, I mean, you've, you've uh, perfectly articulated it, but the, you know, all these companies have some natural plateau they hit. And the only way they get over that plateau is irrational, unsustainable spending. They spend more. Right. Yeah. And the spending just doesn't work. And, but they, they, they sell their investors on, but if I can get to a million people, you know, and, and it's, it, there are these thresholds. If I can get to a million people, if I can get to 2 million people, and I'm sure somebody's charted this whole thing is, you know, you start out and if you have a really good value prop, it kind of happens virally through social media and it doesn't cost you much, but you can't get very big that way. And then, you know, then you just keep making these steps up and every step up costs you more. And so it's the opposite of like how Walmart built its business where, you know, the scale actually brought costs down. Yeah. And so for that reason, I sort of I, I don't see VCs being the way that these things keep getting funded because the VCs have to have a, a billion dollar exit to make sense. Right. And right. You know, o- only a couple of these are going to get billion dollar exits and only because they're going to sell themselves to someone established that's desperate, like a Walmart or a Unilever or something. Um, right. But but so if that's if this is a temporary thing, I guess I'm kind of curious. I'd love for you to kind of put your future hat on we, we are coming up on time um so this is a perfect sort of wrap-up question uh as this all plays out and we we think about the retail landscape five years from now what what does it look like is it is it just walmart and amazon selling general merchandise and everybody else is a specialty retailer that makes their own stuff or what how do you what does the landscape look like five years from now yeah, there's more big players than that, though. I mean, there's there's Walmart, Amazon, Target. Target's Target's got a reason for being because they've got a distinctive approach. You know, their their product and their experience is 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 distinctively different than than Walmart's. Um, and so, you know, there's there's at least three big players. The place where that 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 I think goes away is department stores. They're just in this long, slow decline. And you know, the the advantage Macy's has is they've got some really good locations. Um, but, you know, and, and then people could argue like a Kohl's, well, they've got like this really convenient format, 
And yet, and, and actually the COVID thing plays back to Cole's strength because there was this migration away from the suburbs. You know, the soccer mom that they built their business on wasn't like a, a growth segment anymore. But now all of a sudden people may be moving back to the suburbs. So maybe there's more traffic there. The problem I have with department stores is when you go in and look at their product offerings, category by category, they're not great at anything. Like, you know, they're, they're, like somebody does each thing that they do better than they do. There's still a few, you know, like, you know, cosmetics in some department stores, home furnishings, um, housewares. There's a few that are still quite good. But I do think it will be a series of big players, both, you know, food and GM, um, with a lot of specialty players underneath it. That'll be, you know, it, it, it'll it'll just be social Darwinism with the with the the, the specialty players. You know, it, it's interesting when when I was at Walmart, I did, you know, I, I I was the CEO of .com. Then they finally got me to move to Bentonville, and I, I took on the chief marketing officer role. And, and I wasn't really a marketer before, but I, you know, I think I understand retail marketing, but the, ch the challenge that they gave me was, you know, go out and recruit a team of, of classically trained marketers to really, you know, take, take our capability off dramatically. And I did, I brought in this guy named Stephen Quinn, who succeeded me and went on and had a nice career at Walmart. And I remember about three months into it, four months into it, we were putting something together for presentation. And he said, man, this retail game is brutal. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he pulled out a chart. So he's a CPG marketer, right? And he pulled out a chart of like the top 10 CPG companies from 1980 to what they were in 2000. And they were exactly the same. And you could name them. P&G, uh, Kraft, uh, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, um, you know, Unilever. And, and there'd been some reconfiguration and maybe one was three and three, but they were all the same. You do the same thing in retail. There was only one company on the chart that went from being a top 10 to staying on the top 10. And that was Target because they reinvented themselves. They were Dayton Hudson as a department store chain and morphed into Target, which kept them on the, on the chart. Everybody else had moved from, because the old chart was all department stores and variety stores. And the new chart was all like value players, you know, big box and, and increasingly internet. You know, like like eBay and Amazon were starting to crack the code. So over a 20 year period, the whole thing had just completely changed. Um, and and that's going to just keep happening, I believe. Yeah. You know, it's funny because uh, uh, Steve Quinn gave that graphic to Doug McMillan, the CEO. And so uh, Doug still pulls that out on his phone. Yeah. And he's, and he's like, man, I remember when we were the upstart looking up the hill at these like guys at the top of the list. And he's like, I went to bed one night and now we're at the top of the list. And there are all these guys, look, you know looking to knock us off and it's you know it's he he likes to remind everyone that that uh your position on that list is not guaranteed <laughs> no no and, and that chart he has the before walmart wasn't on it and sears was at the top yeah right? and then Absolutely. and then and the one from 2005 whenever steve quinn put it together was like walmart was at the top um but yeah who knows i mean yeah. listen amazon's a force there's there's no doubt about that yeah, uh, as uh, listeners of this show will will certainly know. Um, and John, that's actually going to be a great place to leave it because it's happened again. We've used up all our allotted time. Um, as always, if there's something we didn't cover on this show, feel free to hit us up on Twitter or Facebook, and we'll be happy to continue the conversation. As always, if you appreciated the show, we'd love it if you jump on iTunes and give us the five star review. John, do you uh, do you pontificate online or no? Not really. No, no, I, I, it, it's funny. No, I, no, actually, the only reason I even pay attention to it is because I need to understand how it all works. 
Um, you know, and I ask my kids questions and stuff like that. But no, I, I don't really. I have no social media presence. I, I think it's just a stage in my career. You know, I'm not really looking for something else and I'm not really looking to build my brand. Now I'm sort of like to be behind the scenes and, you know, I enjoy the role I have right now because I think I'm able to help some people make a difference. But I don't really need much attention. If they want to see your work, they can stroll through a Route 21 store. Sure. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 